Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. As a quick reminder, before we start today's podcast, you can find all of our COVID-19 resources and register your industrial business as a COVID-19 response supplier by visiting thomasnet.com COVID-19. Since its first diagnosis, COVID-19 has spread to more than 190 countries, including every U.S. state. But the virus impact goes beyond the staggering infection numbers. Every country with confirmed cases, even those countries not directly affected, will feel growing economic impacts in the coming weeks, months, and years. Last month, the World Trade Organization estimated a total trade decline, which includes both imports and exports worldwide, between 13 and 32 percent. The organization also expects that trade volumes for nearly every region of the world will face a double-digit decline. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Blasey, Jr., a director at Kroll & Mooring International, who develops and manages large-scale global partnerships and advises business leaders on international trade and foreign policy matters. Andrew last joined us in Episode 7 of our podcast to discuss the impacts of the China-U.S. tariff uncertainty, and he's back with us today to explore the substantial impacts of COVID-19 on the global economy. In today's episode, we'll discuss what the future of global trade will look like as businesses begin to recover from COVID-19 related impacts and how industrial business leaders should strategize for the future survival of their companies. So let me start with the first question is, set the table for us. What, what kind of things are you seeing here as the pandemic is clearly having a, an effect on global trade? Yeah, it's really great to be back with you, Tony. Thank you so much for having me on. And first, let me begin by really extending my prayers that you and all of your listeners are staying healthy and sane, as you mentioned, during this unprecedented time. And, you know, while we're going to talk about the economics and trade of the matter in our discussion, it's really important, from, in my view, from the outset of these conversations, not to overlook the human toll um, that this pandemic is really inflicting. So with that said, Tony, to answer your question, boy, if you thought 2018 and 2019 trade tensions and tariffs were consequential, the current pandemic is on a completely different level. In fact, the anticipated global trade impact of the pandemic is very likely, in my view, to exceed that of the 2008 financial crisis. So let's start with global trade flows. Just to, that seems like a logical place to start. Just last month, the World Trade Organization, WTO, estimated a total trade decline. That, so total trade includes exports and imports around the world this year of between 13 and 32%. These numbers are huge, no matter how you slice it or how you think about it. The WTO also estimated, Tony, that nearly all regions of the world will face a double-digit decline in trade volumes. So the pain is universal, and they put a particular finger on Asia and North American exports as feeling the hardest hit when it comes to trade. And this really makes sense when you consider both the pandemic's impact, where, where it's being felt, as well as which regions of the world have the greater interconnected trade exposure. But now maybe we can turn to some more specific impacts. So if we look at goods, which we already saw a modest decline in in 2019 due to the trade tensions, right, Tony, we were talking about that in our last interview, 
we can now really see that that segment is is really feeling it. And in, in my opinion, and I'm sure you share this with me, Tony, is that it, it may never revert back to the status quo again, uh, at least not in the same way. Uh, manufacturers and industrial firms with complex value chains are universally feeling this adjustment and in many cases feeling the pain. Because of what's essentially been a global shutdown, the more interconnected and dependent your supply chain is, the more vulnerable your business has in inherently become. Um, whether it's electronics, heavy machinery, automotive, aerospace, those are all just examples of sectors that have been particularly affected. Um, we already saw these sectors, and for your listeners who are in these sectors, they'll know this well. We saw this starting to face considerable pressure in February of this year during the first outbreak and shutdowns in China. And that's really only continued to, to sort of exacerbate and expand since. And we also see trade and energy facing an unprecedented situation. And that's unsurprising too. In fact, if we look at just crude oil exports, Tony, which we see in the headlines a lot these days, there was over a trillion dollars in crude oil exports in 2018. So we should anticipate that if just looking year on year, that figure, even if the current situation is temporary, we'll probably see hundreds of billions of dollars in decline of exports this year. But if we shift to services, this is where I think trade impacts are staggering and truly unprecedented. We've seen a total collapse in travel and tourism, lodging, cinema and entertainment. We all know about sporting and concerts, as well as the longer term implications for such service segments as education, you know, and consulting and other professional services. That could be enormous if the pandemic situation continues well into the year. So the only question we're looking at now is just how mass massive and really, in some ways, how quick the rebound will be. That's really the only uh, figure that really matters at this moment. And if we think about it in trade terms, services, which normally doesn't get very much airtime when it comes to trade, in 2019, last year, commercial service exports were over $6 trillion worldwide. So that's akin to the combined GDPs of Japan and Korea. So the magnitude of the pandemic's ability to facilitate service exports between countries will obviously have a significant effect. And then the last thing I'll say, Tony, on a more myopic level, is that we're really closely monitoring how this crisis is leading to enhanced export restrictions and controls. You mentioned uh, in our discussion before the interview, we were talking about medical equipment. Many countries right now are engaged in the prevention of export of medical equipment. So that's one example of where we see certain segments of trade flow being disrupted by governments or other factors. And uniquely, we're also noticing some import challenges too, either real because a country does not want to receive a particular good during the crisis or de facto, right, through delays in customs and things of that nature. We saw that, we've been seeing that in certain countries like India, for example. So in some, Tony, to answer your question, it's a massive time for global trade. Yeah, you and I were swapping the term unprecedented before we started our conversation today. And, and clearly that that's the umbrella term of, of the day. Two quick follow-on questions. We get asked a lot, Andrew, by our audience of manufacturing and industrial execs about the price of energy. And when the prices first started, there was some concern that oil prices would go up. 
ironically, given the news of the day, and that people were thinking that perhaps they would have to factor higher energy costs in the back part of the year. Help our listeners understand, because I think a lot of people are very confused. How does oil literally go down to zero in value? How did things like this happen? And what do you anticipate will happen there with the price of oil going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, if you were to talk to to an energy industry economist, and and my not being one, but I think what they would tell you, Tony, is that you know commodities always are traded in the global system a bit different than you know intermediate or, or finished goods in some cases might be. They're ultimately tied to contracts that are duration based. So what we're seeing now in the energy markets is quite fascinating in that. When you have such a delta emerge between supply and demand, right, especially in the short term, it leads to the inability to deliver the supply to a, a willing customer. There's just no place in some cases to put the oil that's being produced onto the market. There's no place to consume it or to store it. So it's really an interesting time. It's sort of the exact opposite of the 1970s oil yeah. crisis when there wasn't enough wasn't there there wasn't enough oil yeah. to go around. Yeah. Now, what I will say this though, Tony, about energy specifically, in case your listeners are interested, it's that I don't think we should let the current situation blind us to the world's short-term and long-term substantial energy needs. And I'm very bullish on the importance of us looking at things, and I think it's inevitable, looking at things like transition fuels as well as renewable energy sources, there is going to be a huge need to meet the world's energy demand. So we shouldn't let the current circumstances blind us from those energy needs long term. Yeah, really good point. I had had one other idea or or observation in our data that I'd love to get your take on, Andrew. We were talking about sourcing and supply chain disruptions that we're seeing here and and the the impact of that. One of the things that we've been able to watch in our data, we could see the the sourcing for PPE equipment starting in the, the late fourth quarter of 19 and certainly accelerate. Ironically enough, a lot of it initially we saw coming out of China. Mm-hmm. And we're aware of market dynamics enough to realize that 80 plus percent of PPE, as expressed by things like masks, gloves, gowns, comes out of a very small area in China. And it it was clear we were realizing, we were seeing the disruption of that supply chain before we really understood the implications of the data. So my question is, or would love your take on this. We're also now, we're seeing in our data what appears to be, Andrew, almost a wholesale reevaluation of supply chains right now. And it goes way, way beyond PPE equipment. And as an example, I won't name it, but we were in touch with a, a hospital chain that shared the narrative with us that they had been sourcing PPE equipment, again, things like gloves, gowns, and masks for years from a local distributor. And the variance in that market, Andrew, is negligible. One or two percent movement up or down in any given year, it never really moves dramatically. Well, suddenly now, they never paid attention to where exactly that distributor was sourcing this equipment from. It, it passed OSHA standards and, and ISO certification standards, and that's all they really needed. They're now starting to drill down to the next level because they don't want to see something like this happen again. Mm-hmm. A secondary supplier, tertiary supplier. It's a little slightly out of your wheelhouse, perhaps, but I'd just be curious on your take. Do do you think we're going to start to see a kind of a reshaping of how companies think about their supply chains and perhaps start to look at either shifting or, you know, sources closer to home, quote unquote, or other dynamics that maybe we hadn't anticipated? 
Absolutely, Tony. And I love the example that you cited. It's very, it's very telling. I see a couple of different shifts that are, if not already baked into the cake, right? We're just, it's just going to take time to realize them. Uh, one way or another, they're going to manifest uh, for, for the world to grapple with. Let's start with your point about medical equipment, because I think it's a really good one. There is no doubt in my mind that both larger and smaller nations around the world are going to re-examine their health product supply chain, uh, full stop. When we think about medical equipment, active pharmaceutical ingredients, even things like vaccines, um, you know, we should even expect or anticipate that some countries could push to localize production in certain industries, such as those that we've just talked about, or set other requirements. And for international businesses, you know, this really means ensuring adequate supply for the local market as a possible precondition for producing one of those products for export. Um, and in my view, this has the potential to be really highly disruptive, and if not done correctly, could lead to a lack of access in vital health products. So that's one thing we're paying really close attention to because no country, to quote folks that I've been talking to in a number of, not just the big countries, but smaller ones like New Zealand or South Africa, no country wants to be at the bottom of the sourcing totem pole, so to speak, when it comes now to health products in a post-pandemic world. But I'll say this, Tony, and, and we've been seeing this trend start to emerge even before the first COVID-19 patient. I think we're entering a time where this is could be the, the indefinite end to what many of your listeners might know of as just-in-time manufacturing, which is perhaps one of the greatest industrial advances that's been born through globalization, right? Which is to say you, your inputs arrive in the quantity that you need them to, to, to produce the exact quantity of outputs that you need because I have, you know, the world has been structured in comparative advantage through globalization. I think going forward, and the trade tension started to demonstrate the need for this before the pandemic, businesses may now need larger inventories of inputs, as well as greater sourcing diversity going forward into the future. And this could require many companies to onboard greater capital on the supply side, and it also could produce new market inefficiencies that firms are really just going to have to grapple with for some time to come. And then one more thing too, Tony, since, since we're sort of talking about the topic of, of trade supply chains and what to expect as we look ahead, I think the COVID-19 situation has only expanded upon the reality that we're going to see enhanced scrutiny over M&A and cross-border investment in sensitive technologies, particularly if there is a national security component to them. You know, and I'm happy to talk more about the technology space, but I think this is something we absolutely should see um, sort of ramp up uh, in, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I would argue our data already reflects what you're touching on. We're, we, we believe we're already starting to see the dynamics of companies that are adding second and tertiary suppliers. Um, we clearly can see in our data that there's an acceleration of something we've been seeing for the last 10 years or so reshoring towards North American, you know, manufacturing, and it'll be fascinating. I'm going to hold just slightly back from saying Mexico will become the new China, but, but I actually think some of the things that you're touching on, some of the things that we're seeing in our data, um, I, I think we will see a reshaping 
of certainly the global manufacturing economy going forward. This is a pivot in our conversation here, Andrew. I know how hard it is to think about, okay, riddle me this, what's the world going to look like, you know, once we get through the horrible, you know, portions of this, this pandemic, but start to take us through, what do you think the steps are going to look like here? And what do you think in the next, you know, two to three years, what, what, what kind of reshaping will this have? You've hinted at some of these ideas in our discussion, but we'd love to hear you flesh that out a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there are going to be a great number of them, Tony. So I'll, I'll highlight just a few that we're paying close attention to. You know, And I think in many ways, a lot of what we're seeing ultimately circles back to the reality that governments around the world, both national and provincial, are going to become more active in the marketplace. So I think businesses need to prepare for that. First, let's start with workforce resilience and treatment standards. I think that's absolutely going to change. Uh, Mark Cuban, in my view, was really spot on at the start of the crisis when he says that how businesses treat their employees during and immediately after the pandemic sort of subsides could stay with those businesses for a long time to come. I think that's absolutely true. Employers will also be looking at new strategies to strengthen the resilience of their workforce, both in terms of how employees work, but also potentially reducing dependence on larger workforces altogether. So workforce changes are going to be huge. Second and related to that, Tony, is what we're seeing is the focus on localization of talent pools. So think about it this way. If governments choose to parallel sort of nationalistic approaches to their economies and to supply chains, so too could the impact of immigration policies, right, as we look ahead. So what this means is international businesses may need to search for and indeed cultivate the localization of talent in human talent where it lives rather than tapping into massive talent consolidations, for example, like we see in Boston today. So globalization, in my view, is increasingly likely to look more like virtually connected teams spanning many countries rather than a diverse team located all together in a London or in a New York. So that localization of talent pools is something we're paying very close attention to in the years ahead. The third that we're paying close attention to is controls over technological development and cybersecurity. I think cybersecurity in particular has gotten a lot more important. Technology remains the real key to the kingdom of global economic competitiveness. And this becomes all the more important as social safety nets will undoubtedly increase around the world, both for developed and developing countries in the years after this pandemic. So if we look, Tony, at China, you know, they're perhaps committed now post-COVID more than ever before to excelling in the technologies of the future that are going to underpin that country's economic competitiveness. So enhanced focus, for example, on things like intellectual property protections are really going to remain pretty crucial. And then uh, what I'll also say, Tony, is, and this is an area that's near and dear to my heart for a long time, is I think we're going to see an increased focus on the importance of high standard ethical business practices. And you sort of alluded to this a bit in your supply chain uh, when you were talking about sort of tertiary, you know, sort of multi-levels of of our supply chains. I think through the current emergency we're seeing worldwide, there's clearly increased pockets of bribery risk and fraud risk 
that is confronting companies and governments around the world today. And I would strongly caution all of your listeners to really know and ingrain well if they haven't already in their companies, and frankly, nor should they be doing anything otherwise, to expect that there will be some sort of coronavirus defense for bad behavior, right, or inappropriate actions during this unique time. And along those lines, I would actually suggest that now is an excellent time for businesses, industrial or otherwise, to take a really close look at their third-party supplier risks and supply chains as as those sourcing zone um, uh, lines are being reconstituted or reconsidered. It's also a crucial time to focus on the digitalization of government processes. And business, especially industrial businesses, can be a real partner to governments in this because governments are looking for solutions. So think about things like electronic permitting or electronic procurement, things that streamline our business, improve our resilience, but also at the same time reduce corruption risk. So those are just a few, Tony. Great insights, and You and I share a, a perspective on the power of technology appropriately applied and, and staying current and, and with advanced technology and, and frankly, the impact it's had on, on global trade. It is interesting and is something we wouldn't necessarily have anticipated the demand for the digital transformation of industrial sales and marketing as expressed by a lot of the products and services that we offer at thomasnet.com is up over 100% over the last 30 days. And I think in its own way, it's a component of what you were touching on that I think a lot of companies um, are viewing this, not just for the anti-corruption dynamics that you mentioned that are very, very appropriate, but I think also companies are viewing this as an opportunity to to advance their own version of digital transformation. And and as we hear from some companies, quote unquote, I need to get my digital act together. And I think that may be one of the long lasting trends. This may be an accelerant, if you will. And I know digital transformation is a little bit of a, a buzzy term these days, but make no mistake, if you look at manufacturing and industrial marketplaces, while the factory has been automated and other components of it, the digital supply chain is still somewhat lacking. And when you get into the digital side of, of sales and marketing for a lot of these companies, that's not really where they've placed a lot of their innovation, a lot of their investments in technology yet, but it sure seems like it's going to accelerate now. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Hey, as we round up the conversation, um, what advice would you would you give, Andrew? I know this is, this is sort of a, a, a tough question here. Our audience is made up of hundreds of thousands of executives, and they range all the way through to users of our platform that could be in procurement or engineers, all the way through to manufacturers who are advertising customers of ours, who could be running small to medium-sized companies or very large companies. So unfortunately, it's a pretty broad swath to ask this, this question for you, but what advice would you give to folks today that are, that are trying to manage through this? And as evidenced by our conversation, a lot of this hasn't played out yet. We're having to act on imperfect data and projections at this point. What sort of basic tips would you give? Mm-hmm. I'll give three perhaps specific recommendations that I think while hopefully in one or, or, or two or all three might be applicable to all of your listeners, because I, I think there are things that are truly important and are connected to the world, that the changes that we see in the world around us today. So first, earlier in our discussion, I mentioned just-in-time manufacturing. And my thinking around this is that we very well may see 
in a sort of indefinite phase out of this just-in-time manufacturing approach by, quote, an on-demand manufacturing approach for many industries. So with that, I'm very bullish on 3D printing, and industrial businesses ought to really consider what roles such solutions might serve in building up their own supply chain resilience. Um, the benefits of extreme comparative advantage that we saw through globalization was access to whatever we needed at a lower cost borne about through excess supply. The opposite is inherently true, Tony, when supply chains are localized, right? Meaning the need for and cost advantages to a technological solution like 3D printing are likely to increase. So for your listeners that haven't given 3D printing a look for their own sort of solutions to enhancing resilience, I think now would be a very interesting time to do so as supply chains change. Great advice. The second, Tony, is with enhanced supply chain scrutiny, I think also comes increased opportunity to fight counterfeits and substandard goods. I think this is going to be a huge theme in sort of the post-pandemic you know, global trading systems such that it's reconstituted. So for industrial businesses that expect to really see this enhanced focus on transparency, right? Positioning your company as a leader in either the elimination of counterfeit or substandard products in the marketplace could be a really good way to position your brand and also position how, how you kind of configure yourself in that reconstituted supply chain. And then last but not least, this will probably speak the most to all of your, your listeners, Tony, is on the topic we were just covering, is around the resilience born through automation. We already know that automation was on hyperdrive long before the crisis began for many industrial businesses. And I think what the post-COVID world will do is adjust that pace to almost light speed. So as industrial businesses look to enhance their competitiveness through such solutions as automation, you know, I think we're going to see the championing of new strategies emerge in that regard. And what I think is important to point out now is that this wave of automation could pose considerable challenges on society, ones that I don't think from a public policy or a social policy standpoint have been totally um, well considered at this moment in time. So industrial businesses really ought to prioritize ways in which they can elevate their human talent rather than dispensing it when they consider automation solutions. It could very well serve their brand reputation, recognition, and standing in the marketplace over the long term. Fantastic advice uh, for our listeners, Andrew. I, I want to end this conversation the way I started by thanking you. Stay safe, my friend. We look so forward to having you back on the program to kind of update as we start to work through this. But uh, we always appreciate getting your insights, and I know our listeners do as well. Thank you, Tony. You be well, too. My best to the whole team. To learn more about how to prepare your industrial business for the impacts of COVID-19, check out the resources available on Thomas Insights linked in the show notes of today's podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Michaela Tierney. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves.
Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.